Welcome to Future Docs Podcast. My name is Dr. Mizani. I'm a family physician and co-host of Future Docs Podcast. And I'm your other co-host, Dr. Valen Rosas. I'm a leadership intern here at AC Medical. As always, we invite you to watch the video version of this podcast by visiting youtube.com forward slash acmedicalorg. Today is episode 53 and it's entitled Eight Reasons Why U.S. Residencies Require U.S. Clinical Experiences. And we will touch base on why it is important to have USCE or U.S. Clinical Experience when applying for a PGY-1 position in the U.S. Residency Program. First, we have patient demographics, language, expectations, and customer service. Can you tell us more about that, Dr. Mizani? Sure. So the patient population in the United States is like nothing else in any other country in the world. We certainly have people from all around the world that are living here in the United States. And then so that's a very, very complex dynamic that exists between those that have you know very diverse backgrounds and those that were born and raised here versus those that have just been implanted here for whatever reason it may be. And so regardless of the background of the patients, it is the medical resident's responsibility to bridge any gap that may exist. So we cannot use, uh, you know, I don't speak Spanish as a reason, you know, or uh, I wasn't able to get a history from the patient. You can't, we can't use that as, as, as excuses when we're residents or physicians. So being able to bridge that gap is quite important. And once you do understanding the demographics and understanding what makes uh, U.S. healthcare the way that it is, and especially when you compare it with the rest of the world's healthcare, you know, our, our graduate medical education, you know, is probably second to none with respect to the quality and the intensity of, uh, of training that we get. However, our healthcare system uh, outside of graduate medical education is a whole different story. So to be able to understand those nuances and to be able to become a part of a solution uh, here in the United States requires that you know what the issues are and that that only solely comes from experiences that you've had here in the United States. And not just having that experience, but having the insight and the foresight to be able to look at your experience through the lens of a, of a soon-to-be leader, resident, uh, licensed physician. And how does that, how is that going to affect your training? How does your personality adapt to all of this? And what does this all mean for the patients that we serve? And and as you know, right now, you go online and you search any physician and you see number of stars after their name. And so customer service is huge. And many physicians are just not used to this, to being rated. A lot of physicians from all around the world, including here in the United States, they've always thought that, you know, they're pretty untouchable when it comes to customer service. They could just show up whenever they want. Maybe they could be a little bit late or a lot late and, and it'll be okay. And now a lot of those are just being exposed to these customer reviews. So customer service is huge. And that all goes with the first and probably uh, one of the most important reasons why U.S. clinical experience is uh, so critical. And also you mentioned here language. Is it not enough to just know American English? <laughs> it, it will probably uh, get you by about, uh, you know, probably anywhere between 50% and, and 100% of the times, depending on where you're located. If you go to areas such as, you know, some parts of Florida, New Mexico, where patient population of Spanish only speaking patients is, is higher than English speaking patients. And if the rest of the healthcare staff is inundated, for example, with the pandemic and, and admitting COVID patients, you're going to have to figure out a way to take the history of a patient that doesn't speak English and still be able to deliver that care to them. So it's safe to assume that 
speaking English is not enough. Wouldn't they have a Spanish interpreter in the in hospital or? Not always, no. not always. There are a lot that they do, but those are very costly. And, and some hospitals may be deferring that responsibility back to their own nursing staff and other residents and doctors that are there to translate for the team. Thank you, Dr. Mazzani. And another reason for U.S. clinical experience, um, we have acculturating to both the culture of the U.S. communities and the U.S. healthcare system. So, you know, I really look at this as, as both, you know, acculturation and, and also reverse acculturation. It works for both the individuals that were born and raised here in the United States. There needs to be reverse acculturation for them to understand their colleagues that they're working with who were not born and raised here. And also acculturation for those that come into the United States, they immigrate and really understand what uh, these uh, societies and micro societies all around the United States, how do they really work and how do they really integrate with one another? And then on top of that, you have the, 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 the culture that has been is very unique in every single one of the healthcare settings. And this is, this is within clinics as well as, you know, hospitals. And the reason why there are so many different variations in, in how things are done in every single hospital or clinic is because we do not have a socialized healthcare system. And because of that, because this is not implemented by a centralized agency in, in how hospitals should be run other than for accreditation and for safety measures, you'll, you'll see very, very varied cultures within the U.S. healthcare system. And not, so not only do you have to adapt within the communities because, because you need to understand your patient base, but also you need to understand the microcosm of culture that exists amongst healthcare providers and healthcare personnel, just so that you can survive the first few months of residency and be able to be accepted within those teams. And, and you become a part of those teams rather than somebody who's an outsider and is just not mixing in. So acculturation and uh, making sure that your colleagues are also obtaining reverse acculturation so they understand what your background is are, are all very critical and really tough balances to, um, to come to for a lot of people. Can you uh, give us one case scenario where um, the U.S. culture is more unique? Sure. We'll use the uh, residency interview process as an example. A lot of our interviewees who answer questions, one of the best questions that, that I can use is tell us about you. And, you know, they really begin to sound just like their personal statement. And, you know, you look at their personal statement, you're like, wow, you just kind of repeated what you said on your personal statement. And, and you know, the idea with, with communicating in a, in a professional environment for, for example, getting into residencies by getting from point A to point B in a straight line. And so rather than, you know, saying almost your whole life story and tell me about yourself, if you just pick top three or four most significant events that kind of define who you are and say it in, in one to two sentences per event, that's all that we're looking for. And so that type of communication is key. So if you find yourself going from point A to point B and you kind of don't get to it and you just keep going around and around and around in circles until ultimately you get to point B, then you know that there is, uh, there's probably some cultural barriers or linguistic barriers between the way you communicate and what is accepted here in the United States. If you find yourself going from point A to point B in a straight line when answering questions, then you know that most likely you're speaking a very similar format to what's going to be accepted in that professional setting. Uh, such as graduate medical education. And then what about preparing for employment? Does um, U.S. clinical experience prepare you for employment and how? Sure. That's the third most important reason why 
our U.S. residencies are asking for U.S. clinical experience. A lot of our candidates, whether you were born in the United States or, or outside of the United States, you've they've just actually never held any jobs that they've gotten paid for. They've just been students all their lives. And and for a lot of our international physicians who have secured jobs in their countries, their employment has just never been in danger, right? Once you're a doctor and you know, you're licensed to practice, you have your own clinic and everybody really respects you and you know, you typically don't get fired. And so when we ask our international doctors, have you ever heard of a, a resident that gets fired or a physician that gets fired? You know, nine times, maybe 9.9 .9 times out of 10, they'll say, no, we've, we've not heard of that. So really residency is an employment. And if it's employment, that means you're no longer a student. So even though it's called graduate medical education, first it is employment. You have to go through human resources. You have to know what it means to be an employee. There's job descriptions, there's expectations. And once you understand those, then a part of the job is, for you to take your medical knowledge and be able to implement that in all the patient care settings. But first and foremost, you have to know what it's like to be an employee here in the United States. And that's what a lot of these clinical experiences also give you an insight to, to see how employees fit in within clinics and hospitals. And you mentioned that it's rare for physicians outside of the U.S. or different countries to be fired from their job position. And in the U.S., there's a chance, a higher chance. Uh, can you tell us more about why that is? Sure. So we're just going to focus on residents being terminated and that number varies on a year by year basis. And, but generally speaking, it's anywhere between 1000 and 2000 residents, they get shifted either by force involuntary, or maybe on paper, it looks like it was voluntarily where they resigned, but we know that most of these programs give the, the, the outgoing resident, the option of whether we can fire you or we can allow you to say that I'm resigning. And at that moment in time, they'll even say that, look, we'll, we'll give you every support that you need to find another residency position, but it just doesn't happen. So within the, the realm of, of residency, the number one reason that I've seen why, uh, why residencies start to get cold feet about one of the residents and whether they should allow them to progress into a PGY2 is if they have any concerns about this particular resident being able to lead their residents that are, that are coming after them. So we see during the first six months of residency, we see that the, the programs are doing a lot of assessment and analysis about how the residents are performing and usually probations and suspensions and performance improvement plans. And, you know, uh, all of these really start to happen sometime in December, January, February of every year. And then they'll give them two, three months, you know, to, to work under much more stricter supervision and uh, decide whether they need to extend their PGY-1 or they need to put them on some sort of a more serious suspension and possible termination. And so the number one reason that I've seen is if there is any cause for concern for leadership, which is a part of ACGME core competency professionalism, it could really fall under any of the six ACGME core competencies because uh, a leader is supposed to help their co-residents perform well in all of the six ACGME core competencies themselves. So that's one of the main reasons. Thank you, Dr. Mazzani. Sure. Another one here is recommendations for physicians who have undergone the U.S. GME process themselves prefer U.S. LORs. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. So, you know, it's one thing to get U.S. clinical experience. It's another to be able to 
communicate the quality of that clinical experience to future stakeholders in your professional life, which would be future residency programs. And one of the things that programs ask for are letters of recommendation. And so you have to be very choosy and who is going to be your letter writer. And you also have to have some sort of a familiarity with regards to their writing style. If they don't write so well, you know, as you're looking at their patient notes and it just doesn't really make much sense to you, or you look at some of the writing that they've done, you know, casually, and it's just, it's just not all there. So you want to, you know, that's probably going to maybe, uh, maybe a sign that maybe that the same kind of negative qualities, maybe in a lot of recommendation. So either ask for another letter writer, if you have that option or see if you can see some of their sample work. But the most important thing is that future residency programs want to know who is it that you've asked this, this letter of recommendation from. Just because they're physicians does not mean that they are qualified to recommend you for a U.S. residency. You know, treating a heart attack may be very similar in the United States and Canada. However, working in these two healthcare systems is quite different. And quite honestly, if I'm practicing in the United States, I should not be recommending somebody to get into residency in Canada. And the same goes true for somebody who has had a lot of experience in Canada. If they make a recommendation for someone to get into residency as a PGY-1 here in the United States, purely based on you know their medical knowledge or thinking that they get along with the teams that are there in Canada is making a huge assumption that that individual who you're recommending is also going to thrive in US residency, which is so inundated with medical legal factors, with, you know, just the, the cultural variations that exist and the healthcare system, which is 180 degrees different than really Canada, anywhere in the world. So the letter writer must have gone through this process themselves before. And these letters must be from residency relevant type of clinical experiences in the United States so that they justify why this letter of recommendation is worth reading and spending the next five to 10 minutes of this election committee's time and, and seeing how, you know, this means that you're going to be a good resident. And another reason is uh, ACGME core competencies. Um, can you tell us more about why this is important in your LOR? Sure. ACGME core competencies is, is important letters of recommendation. We, we, we dove deeply into ACGME core competencies in episode number 15. You know, one of the, 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 the first few episodes that we produced, we thought that that was a, a very important first line topic to cover. So I invite you to take a look at episode number 15, but what happens with U S clinical experience is that it's one thing to get to see how a patient post myocardial infarction is treated or how, you know, we do admission and how we do discharge and how our systems based practice works in the United States. It's another to be able to categorize all of those experiences into six categories, which are ACG core competencies. And those six are professionalism, patient care, practice-based learning, systems-based practice, interpersonal communication skills, and medical knowledge. If you know these six and you can identify experiences from your U.S. clinical experiences that relates to each one of them, then you are on the right track. Now you're utilizing your U.S. clinical experiences effectively, which means that you're going to be able to, the same thing is going to translate appropriately in your residency application. The same is going to get translated into letters of recommendation that are ACGME core competency-based. Once you request a letter writer to do that, it just gets translated into your the performance in your interviews. It just has so many downstream positive effects. Uh, I just, I could just keep going on and on with it. But ACGME core competencies and that you that you understand 
in your U.S. clinical experiences is, is huge. U.S. medical students are evaluated based on ACGM and core competencies after their clinical rotations. Residents are evaluated after each one of their residency rotations based on ACGM and core competencies and sub-competencies, which they call milestones. And if you fall short on any of these milestones, that's when a suspension happens. And it is very real. A lot of people get suspended. We actually have a service for residents that are in trouble and residents that have been terminated or resigned and are trying to get back into residency. So ACG and core competencies is really important for you to nail down in your U.S. clinical experiences and will help you uh, disseminate all of that into your entire application so there's consistency. Are there uh, keywords to look for in LORs? In letters of recommendation, which we've done a few podcasts on as well, there's a lot of uh, hidden messages, you know, cryptic messages that programs look for in a letter of recommendation. I'll give you a few examples of them. Let's say that I'm, I opened up a letter of recommendation and the first paragraph says, uh, you know, does not use the word that I am recommending this individual. And it just says, uh, you know, letter of reference or, you know, so-and-so is applying to your residency program. It doesn't come off with, you know, I strongly recommend this individual to your particular specialty. Then, you know, we will then wonder whether this letter of recommendation is truly a recommendation or they've been asked to write and they wouldn't recommend that individual otherwise. If the letter writer starts out by saying, I have been asked to write this letter of recommendation is different than them doing it voluntarily themselves. So then we wonder whether they wanted to, they really wanted to do that on their own free will. You know, if at the end of a letter of recommendation says, please call me to discuss uh, this candidate more in detail, maybe then at that point, we're wondering, well, there's probably some more problems that they're telling us to contact them rather than saying, you know, if you have any other questions, go ahead and contact us. So there's some undercover messaging that these programs look for in these letters of recommendation, Thank which you. is why we always say, you know, if you're an international medical graduate or an international medical student, don't waive your right to see the letters because those, those hidden messages could have been a mistake. And the letter writer may not have known about that. They may have just thought that they were being fancy in the way they write, but they're sending the wrong message across. Thank you, Dr. Mazzani. Another um, key point as to why we should have a U.S. clinical experience is medical legal aspects of graduate medical education. Uh, can you tell us why this is so important, Dr. Mazzani? Sure. In the United States, we probably have more attorneys than we do uh, physicians. And, you know, they all want to make a living. And those that focus on malpractice uh, certainly go after uh, residents as well. And they're a pretty low-hanging fruit because, you know, they're residents and there's a lot of mistakes that could be made. There's a lot of handoffs. And, and so there's a lot of issues that we could uncover in those cracks. I'll, I'll give you an example of a medical legal situation that caused a an international medical graduate to recently be terminated from residency. I'll give you an example of a resident who was terminated from residency. This individual, their significant other, uh, was admitted into the hospital for an accident. And the resident was understandably concerned, but this was not a patient that was assigned to this resident. This resident went in and accessed uh, the data for their significant other and communicated it even with the, the significant other, but the significant other had not given permission for the resident to go into the records. Well, the patient complained to the residency, the residency program backtracked using IP addresses and, and login information. And they found out that the, this resident did all of the above. And so it was a HIPAA violation. And so they made the resident go through HIPAA retraining. You would think that they would go through retraining and 
you know, there'll be, you know, it will be just be water under the bridge, but that was not enough. That resident was already on the radar and that resident got terminated uh, shortly after towards the end of that suspension. And there was really nothing else that, that could be done. So that's an example of a medical legal aspect of graduate medical education that could end careers. Oh, HIPAA violation is no joke. Um, I believe it's not as popular in other countries, though. It is not. And, uh, you know, uh, protected health information is is gaining traction. Uh, fortunately, I'm not tracking it across the world, and I'm not sure how much that's being respected. But certainly in the United States, there is, uh, there's, a, there's a big push, and there's some huge fines that come with it if it's violated. Fines of up to $1 million and uh, 12 months of jail time, if not longer. Well, that's uh, very interesting, something to look into. Um, what about electronic medical records? Um, how is that different in the U.S., the EMR? Sure. Uh, the difference is we have electronic medical records in the United States. The majority of uh, our, our clinics and hospitals have already converted over. And mainly that's because, you know, the payers are requesting to see digital versions of all the medical, medical records because it's easier to audit them that way. And so in the United States, we have a, a very vast infrastructure of electronic medical records. And of course, there's a lot of improvements that could still be made to our EMR system, but we have an EMR system here in the U.S. Across the world, it's not, that's not the case. Uh, you may have EMR in your country, but, but not every country has it. The majority of countries are still on paper-based medical records. And, and to not have any EMR experience here in the United States using the EMR systems that we're so used to is a problem, which you could rectify it by gaining you know, residency relevant clinical experiences. Keep in mind that some of you may say, okay, well, can I just, you know, get a job as a medical assistant or as a scribe? And that will be clinical experience. And if you kind of think about it, being a scribe, you're really just typing what the physician says. That's all you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to input or infuse your opinion. You're not supposed to share that with the patient. It's really you're, you're typing and you're transcribing. That's all your job is. And so certainly that's not residency relevant by itself. Maybe passively through osmosis, you're getting some experience, but you being able to come up with your own assessment and plan based on the histories you've asked of the patient is, is very, very different. So, and, and, and to get all that into the electronic medical record is critical. So uh, that's what we mean by residency relevant clinical experience, rather than by just simply following the orders that a physician has, has put in as as maybe a medical assistant has to do, or, or as a scribe has to do, or as a nurse has to do. And for those who struggle with electronics and everything under that category, is there a program or something we can do to brush up on that? Well, if you ask, you know, some of my family members, they'll, uh, you know, electronics are, are the devil and, you know, everything always goes wrong with their laptops. So I don't know what, what challenges somebody would have with electronics. Uh, I guess everybody's challenge would be a little bit different. Maybe they don't know how to type. Maybe they don't even know where the power button is on a, on their computer. Maybe they don't know how to connect to the internet. I think that they need a very holistic approach to, to really bringing their, their skills, like their, their technology skills up to date. And you don't have to be a, a, become a developer or a programmer to, to do these things. There's some, you know, very basic things that you need to do. You need to learn how to type. I think by, by default, by learning how to type, you're going to learn a lot more about your laptop and about your desktop. And then you got to get into these clinical experiences so that you can understand how technology is really used in U.S. healthcare systems. So you know what areas to focus on and what areas not to. You know, you can spend your time in a very high yield fashion. 
Thank you, Dr. Mizani. And the final points we have for today is um, how the pandemic's impact um, has affected the U.S. healthcare delivery system. Can you tell us more about that, Dr. Mizani? Sure. So uh, the, the way uh, that the United States has handled the pandemic is, is probably quite different than anywhere else in the world. And the same could be said about every other country. It's something that is brand new. Everybody um, is just doing their best. And, and even our, our Center for Disease Control is, is learning as they go. So knowing how the healthcare system in not even the entire country, but even every region, every even every city, even from one hospital in the same city to the next, they're handling it different. We saw that in some hospitals that that ample PPEs, personal protective equipment, and some hospitals that were forcing their nursing staff and their residents to turn in N95 masks after three days so that they would disinfect it and they would reuse those masks all over again. And so just, you know, really, really mind-boggling steps that our healthcare system has taken. We we used to hear from some of our rotators, they would have the hospital, I'm not sure if it came from hospital executives or somebody within the hospitals that would have them go in and lay out the, uh, the body suits out in the sun for a few hours and then bring them back in and wear them again. It's just, you know, uh, I, I can't even, uh, it's pretty mind-boggling. But knowing how the United States, how our healthcare is provided, what happens to all of our urgent cares in the emergency room, everybody sitting in cars, not going into the clinics, you know, what the physicians are doing with their staff, what happens when the staff is out, you know, what happens when, you know, half the resident team is, is out because of COVID. So really important that, you know, we know that you've not been stagnant during the pandemic and, and your clinical experience during the pandemic in person, preferably, but live online is, is, is important as well to be able to show that in your application is critical. And more importantly, to show that in your letter of recommendation is, is critical as well. And I guarantee you it's going to be one of your interview questions too. Thank you for all those points, Dr. Mizani. Welcome. Well, this concludes our Future Docs podcast episode. And if you're listening to this podcast, be sure to watch the video form on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash acmedicalorg. These eight points that we presented to you are really just the top eight reasons that we typically refer to. Uh, when someone is just wondering why should they gain U.S. experience when they've achieved such high levels within their medical professional career in their countries. And so hopefully these eight reasons that I presented to you and Dr. Rosas asked me about is going to you know, get some mental juices going and, and help you put your past temporarily on pause and see whether by gaining U.S. clinical experience, if it will improve your candidacy or it's going to improve the quality of your interview responses and the quality of your application. And I think that the easiest way to look at it is just imagine what would your personal statement look like having talked about your U.S. experiences versus not having any of it at all and being able to show your connection to that program. And if you can use the eight reasons that I mentioned over here in your personal statement or in your interviews or as parts of your strength, I think that your application is going to be, uh, your candidacy is going to be at a whole different level than you ever expected it to. That's how you become much more competitive. Uh, so if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to contact us directly at uh, podcast at acmedical.org or better yet, join us, uh, become a member of AC Medical. Uh, we have uh, memberships as low as $300 a year. And we have memberships that uh, give you unlimited access to our office hours and mentorship on a weekly basis, um, you know, for not much higher than that. And so really consider uh, joining our team and, and uh, seeing how we can change the trajectory of, of your residency candidacy. As always, thank you for your time, Dr. Mazzani, and for our future docs, we will catch you next week. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Rosas. And uh, thanks, everybody, for uh, watching and listening into this podcast. We'll see you on our next episode, episode 54.